Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. We're so glad that you're tuning back in for our online service. Uh, just a reminder, we have began to have our, our in-person services again. So 10.30 a.m., service only right now at half capacity. So when you come in, there's a one-way in and a one-way out, and every other pew is marked off. And so we look forward to you coming back as June gets here and summer's upon us and all these restrictions kind of lift. We're, we're excited to begin to see more and more of our church family each and every week. And so until that day, I cannot wait to see you face-to-face. A couple of things I shared last week during the service that happened on Sunday morning was there's two things that I've learned over this COVID-19 pandemic that are essential for the church. Uh, Number one, the most essential thing is personal discipleship. As we uh, look at what church life looks like, as we look at what it looks like to grow in our faith, personal discipleship, being in God's word, uh, being motivated personally to to, uh, spend time with the Lord is, is essential. And number two, corporate relationships. One of the things we've missed is the the camaraderie and the fellowship and the love and the family of the local body, uh, the church. And so as as we come back in, it's my prayer that you come back in and and these corporate relationships spur you on and uh, sanctify you and grow you in your faith. And so we're just so excited to be coming back uh, to live services. But if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 6, we're going to kind of continue going through the chapter and through the book and the gospel. And we've got to chapter 6. And so we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So Jesus, he's been out, he's been doing his ministry. He's been teaching and healing people. And, and you know, he's, he's been showing his sovereignty And now he decides to go back home. So he begins to travel 25 miles back to his hometown, which is Nazareth. And it's a it's a small town. I don't know about you. Maybe you were raised in a small town. Maybe maybe you thought the coolest thing in your town was that you got a Walmart. You know, I don't know. But there's some places that are small towns. I thought that my town that I grew up in was small because we only had two high schools uh, and they were kind of crosstown rivals. And, you know, we had all this uh, this football that was local and these, you know, competitions and everything. But uh, my graduating class had over 500 people in it. So it wasn't really that small because there's places that are, that are really small. I mean, one of them would be Lost Springs with a population of one. Now, it's not really lost because one person found it, but can you imagine moving and then there being nobody in the town? I mean, that's what, when this person goes on vacation, there's no one left in the town. Or, or what about this one? Gross. Gross, Nebraska. Uh, people say, hey, where do you live? And you say, gross. I mean, don't, wouldn't you hate to live in gross, Nebraska? I mean, there's only three people that live there. And if you're one of those three and you're watching, we're so glad you're watching. Gross. Uh, I'm sorry you live where it's gross, I, I guess. But this is kind of what people thought about Nazareth. They thought Nazareth was a gross place. And so his hometown was about 60 acres on a rocky hillside on a road to nowhere. I mean, nobody went this place. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. I mean, this is a place where 60 acres with about 150 to 500 people living there. Now, some of you, you live on more than 60 acres. Your actual home and property is more than 60 acres. Now, imagine if that was your whole town. If you lived in a small 60-acre town with 150 to 500 people, there's, there's something I would know, and, and you would know. You would know everyone. 
Not only that, you would know everyone's business and they would know your business and you'd be afraid because every time everybody went to the store, they'd be talking about everyone's business, right? That's what happens in a small hometown. And so this place was, was thought of as gross, as, as really nothing. And even we see this in John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph, Nathaniel, said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can, I mean, like, this, is, this place is gross. This is a small town, 60 acres, middle of nowhere. Like, are you kidding me? And Philip said to him, hey, come and see. Come and see Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as we get into this, we're going to see Jesus coming back to his hometown, but we're also going to see that there's two types of people. There's doubters and there's disciples. So let me pray for us as we jump into God's word. Father, we thank you so much for our time in your word. Lord, we would ask that your spirit would open our eyes, open our ears, allow us to hear, allow us to receive the gospel truth, that we would be disciples. God, that you would move us out of areas of doubt and into uh, fellowship with you and obedience to you in Christ's name. Amen. So the first one is Jesus and doubters. So Mark 6, verses 2 through 6. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? So here's the deal. Jesus comes in, he's teaching, and they're asking the question, where, what, and how? Who is this? What's going on? Because you're thinking about this. Everybody knows Jesus. If you live somewhere for 30 years on 60 acres with 150 to 500 people, they know you. And he comes back, he's teaching, and they're like, how can this be? They were astonished. Now, this is the same thing that happened earlier on in Mark chapter 1, 22. The people were amazed, astonished. They're amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So when Jesus teaches, there's something different about how he teaches. He teaches in a way that who, what, when, how? This is the kind of reaction that he gets. Not only that, but they begin to hear about all of these miracles that have taken place. So just up to this point, as we've gone through the gospel of Mark, you've got that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed many in Calpernum. He healed a leper. He healed a paralyzed man. He healed uh, a man with a withered hand. He, he healed many who came from other areas, multitudes who had diseases and who were demon-possessed. He calmed the storm. He healed a demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs. He healed a woman with an issue of blood who had had it for 12 years. And not only that, he raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Now, these are the types of things that people are hearing, and they're saying, we're astonished. Who, what, when, how? How is he doing these things? Don't we know who Jesus is? So here's the deal. This hometown, his hometown, they don't deny his wisdom and they don't deny his miracles. They simply cannot believe how he can be the Messiah. So they know the facts and they, they know who he is, yet they can't reconcile the fact that he's able to do these things. He's able to teach this way. Verse 3 says, is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So they're saying, look, we know this guy. Is he not the carpenter? And they say carpenter, you know, because he's known for his trade. 
Anytime uh, you, you grow up and you get a job, people will ask you, hey, what do you do? Because it's part of your identity. And so they're asking, hey, isn't this the carpenter? The word there in the Greek means uh, uh, where we get architect from. So he's like a master builder, whether it's carpenter or whether it's stonemason. I mean, he, he knew how to build things. And so this is the reputation he had in his hometown, this 60 acres of property, a town in the middle of nowhere with about 150 to 500 people. Is this not the guy who builds things? Isn't this the guy we know his family? See, they're very familiar with Jesus. And this is kind of what we've said. Being familiar with Jesus isn't the same as having faith in Jesus. If, if we look at this and we look at all of these people, they're very familiar with Jesus. They can actually tell you what his occupation is, who his family is, what he's done his whole life. They're so familiar with him, but they can't reconcile the fact that he could be the Messiah. Now, one uh, famous writer said this, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, what does this mean? It means that there's a danger that if you're so familiar with something that you could, you could not show it respect. You could even become bored with it. The danger for these hometown people is the same danger for those of us who have grown up in the church, maybe even grown up in houses of faith and in a cultural Christianity. And that is the danger of familiarity, breathing contentment. What that means is, is when you know something or someone so well, you can become bored with them and stop treating them with respect. How often is it that people who have been raised in the church, people who have been raised in Christian homes, maybe, maybe even in the South, in the, in the Bible Belt, they, they've become so familiar with the facts of Jesus, but they just can't reconcile in faith to make him Lord. Often, those who are most familiar with Jesus act bored with Jesus. They act bored with reading his word. They act bored with being committed to his body of believers and mission. I mean, they're kinda, they just kind of grow bored with going to church and being a part of a church family. They get bored with reading his word. Well, I've tried to read his word. It's just, it's just not interesting. They get bored with coming to worship services. But they're so familiar with him because they've been around him for so long that familiarity has breeded contentment. People who are familiar with Jesus might be willing to admit all the facts about Jesus, but they aren't willing to have faith in him as Lord. That's where a lot of people are. They're so familiar with Jesus, but they, they have a stumbling block of having faith in Jesus. You see, the goal of knowing Jesus is never to become so familiar with Jesus that you're comfortable with Jesus. Now, let, let's let that sink in for a second. Your goal of knowing Jesus is to never become so familiar with Jesus that it leads to you being just comfortable with Jesus because his hometown was too comfortable with what they knew about Jesus. There's a, there's a fine line of becoming so comfortable with what you know about Jesus that you just kind of disregard Jesus. And this is what his hometown is doing. But true Christianity pushes us out of being comfortable because Jesus is always going to push us in the direction of sanctification, sacrifice, and service. If we're truly in a relationship with the Lord, it's not going to be comfortable. I want you to hear that, okay? It's not comfortable Christianity because Jesus is always pushing you out of your comfort zone. He's always pushing you to do his work, and he wants to do a work in you. Number one, sanctification. Sanctification is after salvation, there's sanctification. That's where God begins to cut things out of your life that 
that you need to be cut out so that you can grow more and more like him until the day of glorification. So sanctification, sacrifice. He calls you to be a living sacrifice is what Romans uh, would say. In service, he calls you to live in service of him. These are not comfortable because comfortable Christianity hides from sanctification because sanctification happens in the process of pruning. Anytime God wants to cut things out of your life, the things that are leading you away from him, things that you know shouldn't be there, maybe they're leading towards sin or maybe they are sin. Anytime he begins to cut those things out of your life, it's going to be painful. When's the last time you cut yourself? Was it an accident? You cut yourself maybe with scissors or maybe you're cutting something with a knife and accidentally you cut yourself. It's always painful. When Jesus begins to cut things out of your life with pruning, expect it to be painful, not comfortable. Comfortable Christianity hides from sacrifice because sacrifice happens when we put, our, when we put others first. When we forgive and when we love unconditionally, these are the things that God calls us to do as his children. He calls us to put others first to sacrifice, to be, to be used by him, to forgive those who mistreat us as he has forgiven us, and to love unconditionally, even when we think someone doesn't deserve it. These do not come naturally. These are not comfortable moments. Forgiving people is not comfortable. Putting people first ahead of yourself is not comfortable. We all try to look out for number one. But comfortable Christianity, it hides from these things. Comfortable Christianity hides from a life of service because service happens through humility. Being humbled is painful. Being humbled is not comfortable. God's calling us to serve him in a humble service. He's calling us to be of Christian service. And Christian service is looking to further the kingdom, not, not to promote personal piety. Now, that's, it's so easy to miss. It's so easy to be wrapped up in a Christian culture, to be wrapped up in comfortable Christianity, and to do things and say, look what we did. Look how good we're being. Look how easy that was. Look at how I served. Let me pat myself on the back. Let me show everyone else what I was doing. But that's not what God calls us to. Look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 of Matthew. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what Jesus is saying is I've called you to a life of service and it's not going to be comfortable because you're not the one going to get the accolades for it. You should be doing things in, in secret for the kingdom of God, promoting the kingdom of God, not, not promoting yourself or personal piety so that you look better. See, these things are a stumbling block for those who are most familiar with Jesus. He says there, verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This word offense is interesting because it's scandalizo in the Greek, and it means scandalous. It also it shows up later on in the New Testament as a stumbling block. He's the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus Christ is a stumbling block for many. They just can't get over the fact that God's called them to do something that's uncomfortable. God's called them to believe in such a way that changes their life. And if Jesus hasn't changed your life, then you may not have met him. You might know a lot of facts about him. You might be very familiar with him. But if he hasn't changed your life, if you haven't had to trip over the fact that he wants to do some things in your life, then maybe you haven't met him. So unbelief, as we're about to see, is a stumbling block because unbelief is not unknowing. 
You can be unbelieving about Jesus and still know a lot about Jesus. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Look at the areas that Jesus says that he's not welcomed. His hometown, this 60 acres of property where people knew him very well, his relatives, his own household. The ones that were most familiar with Jesus are the ones that actually are rejecting Jesus as Lord. Unbelief is not necessarily unknowing. Unbelief is a stumbling block because unbelief seeks to discredit. Okay? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not this his sisters? Let's begin to discredit by pointing out the fact that we know all these things about Jesus. This can't be the Messiah. Look, unbelief seeks to discredit the validity of something by leveraging the unbelief in others. Now, hear this out. It wants to discredit the fact that Jesus is Lord by leveraging the fact that people live as if he's not Lord. And what these people are doing is they're leveraging the fact that his own brothers and sisters do not believe. And we know this because they didn't, they didn't become Christians until after the resurrection. And so what these, these town people are doing, this hometown group are saying, look at his relatives. Look at his brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters of Christ. If they're not living as if he's Lord, then why should we accept him as Lord? Unbelievers are looking to discredit Jesus's lordship by, by the reputation and witness of his brothers and sisters who are living as if he isn't Lord. Now, for you and I, if we call ourselves brothers and sisters of Christ, then understand this, unbelievers are going to seek to discredit the validity of that by looking at your life. And if your life shows them that he's not Lord, that's going to give them even more reason to have unbelief. So unbelief seeks to discredit. Verse 3 is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, this is super interesting. Do we really think that Mary never passed down her belief to her children? Now, do we really think that? I mean, Mary knew, right? She knew from the get-go when the angel showed up and said, you're going to be pregnant and you're a virgin. I mean, she's going to know, like, this is going to be the Messiah. Now, it is my understanding that she would have shared that in her household, that she would have told them, look, kids, Jesus is different. His father is the father in heaven, right? Your father's Joseph, right? But this guy, he's different. But belief is not inherited. It's individual. For those of us who are so familiar with Jesus, maybe we've been raised in a Christian home, maybe raised in the church, maybe raised in a Christian culture or environment, our belief in Jesus is not inherited. Even if your parents have talked to you over and over and over about their belief, it doesn't necessarily mean that it transfers over to you. And, and some of you listening right now, you, you're in a Christian home and maybe your parents are making you sit on the couch right now. They're like, we're, we're all watching, get in here, right? And that might be happening. But let me tell you something, your belief in Jesus Christ has to be individual. It's not gonna just osmosis into your side of the couch, okay? It's not gonna happen that way. It's individual. It didn't even happen in Jesus's family. So why, why would you expect it to happen in yours? And parents, let me tell you, you do everything you can to show them your belief in Jesus is real. Because they will try to discredit their belief if yours doesn't match up. 
If you're not living as if he's Lord of your life, why would they live as if he's Lord of their life? So this is on us. It's all individual. Unbelief, it's a stumbling block because unbelief leads to aggravation towards those who believe. Now, we know this, right? If you've shared your faith with someone who's not a believer, they might have listened to you a time or two, but over a, over a period of time, they're going to get aggravated with you. And in John 15, 19 through 21, Jesus says this, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's like, look, the world's going to hate you. It's going to, this aggravation is going to get more and more and more. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they keep my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus is saying, look, unbelievers, they're, they're going to grow in their hostility. Unbelief grows to hostility towards those who believe. So expect persecution, expect pushback when you share your faith. Unbelief is a stumbling block because unbelief ridicules. It, it, you'll get made fun of. People will point out things in your life and, and, and call you foolish. Verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, this could be the fact that Joseph has died. It, that could be what is going on. But in those days, when you referred to someone, you referred to them as the son of the father, right? So they would carry on the father's name. They don't do this here. These are, these are people in a 60-acre area of city. These people, they all know each other, 150 to 500 people, and they know the story of Jesus, and they know the story of his birth. And so it could be that they're making a cheap shot at the scandal of his birth. Is this not Jesus, the one who was born out of wedlock? Is this not him that, that we don't know who his father is? It could be even that. I mean, unbelief looks to ridicule. But the most damaging thing that unbelief does, unbelief misses out on the mighty work of redemption. It misses out on the mighty work of redemption. Verse 5, And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. He marveled at their unbelief. He could not believe that they didn't believe. These are his own people, his own hometown, the ones who knew him best, his own relatives, his own household. He marveled at their unbelief. Romans, Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look, belief is essential for salvation. He was amazed at their unbelief. He couldn't do any mighty works of redemption there. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He helps us understand it. Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. Every act of miracle and ministry that Jesus did was pointing people towards the redemption, towards salvation, towards finding life in him. And it's impossible without belief. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews says in 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must what? Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think this is the perfect time for us to stop and to have a prayer prompt. To just stop for a moment and say, where is my unbelief? Have I become so familiar with Jesus that I'm actually living as if I don't believe he's Lord? In Mark chapter 9, 24, there's, there's an interesting thing that happens. We'll get to that here in a few weeks. But this dad says this, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe right now you just need to stop and you need to think about your belief system. Think about how you've made Jesus Lord of your life or how you've just known facts about Jesus your whole life. If you have areas of unbelief, will you pray this simple prayer, help me with my unbelief? Will you pause? Will you pray? Second one is Jesus and disciples. So we had Jesus and doubters. Now we have Jesus and disciples. You're either, you're either a doubter or a disciple. So let's keep reading here. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, Jesus got his disciples together. He's going to send them out in his authority to do his ministry. And so this is how you know. Doubters doubt, but disciples go and do. Disciples are sent out by God because they believe. And so this is what we know. There's four distinctions of a disciple that we're going to run into. Disciples do ministry in community. How interesting is that? He sends them out two by two, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, there's no Lone Ranger Christianity because if you're a Lone Ranger, you're an easy target. But you need to go in community and do ministry together, holding each other accountable, going out and making an appeal on behalf of God. You are called to go and tell people to be reconciled to God. This is what disciples do. Disciples do ministry, and they do ministry in community. So let me ask you, are you actively involved, even in this crazy chaos of COVID-19, are you actively involved in making sure that you're part of a community of faith where you can do ministry in community? Because that's the model Jesus sent his disciples out in. Here's the second thing. Another distinction is disciples practice dependence upon Jesus. Not only are they in community doing ministry, but they practice dependence upon Jesus. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not even to not put on, on two tunics. So you know you can get two tunics, just one tunic and your sandals. You go out, you take nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm an overpacker, Right? Uh, you know you're out there. You're going on vacation, and you get your suitcase out. You get all your clothes. You put them on the bed, and you're like, okay, here's day one. Here's day two. Here's day three. I need more underwear. Let's do some laundry. You get them all out, right? And then you're like, 
Okay, but what if there's an extra day? Well, let me get an extra, and then you get an extra, day, and then you're like, but what if we, what if we go swimming? Well, let's get that. Well, what if, well, what if we do this? What if I need this pair of shoes? How many pair of shoes do you need to take on vacation? Let's be honest, none, because you're barefoot the whole time, right? So why do we pack all of these things? Because we're trying to prepare for whatever might happen. But this is not what Jesus says. He says, look, I don't want you to take anything. Take nothing. Jesus is instructing them to go in the confidence of his authority and not in the confidence of their accessories. What a remarkable thought. That he says, look, I get it. If I send you out, there's a chance that you'll put so much confidence in what you can do rather than what I'm going to do. If you, if you take all your accessories, all your money, all the, all the things that you can use, you're going to have so much uh, in, in all of those things, all those accessories, you're going to put so much faith in them and not in God. Ministry can miss its actual purpose or derail when the focus is on the vehicle of ministry over the destination of ministry. Now, this is painful for some of us because we want to do ministry so bad. We want to be part of a community of faith, and we want, we want to actually go and do things. But our focus sometimes becomes on the vehicle of ministry. And I'm just going to say, like, maybe it's a program. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe we got to go through a, a certain thing. Maybe we got to do this certain kind of mission project. And what happens is our verbiage becomes, we're going to go do this. We're going to go do this, and we're going to pack this, and we're going to take this, and we're going to accomplish this. When really, Jesus is calling us to go in his authority, dependent upon him showing up. What if you went and you did ministry and you're like, I don't know, but I'm, I'm looking forward to what God is going to do, not what I'm going to go do. This is what disciples do. Disciples go in community to do ministry, but they go dependent upon the Lord. Maybe God's never shown up in, in the ministry areas that you're, trying to, that you're trying to accomplish because you're trying to do all the work. And he's like, well, I'd show up, but you look like you've got all your pretties set out and you, all your accessories. It looks like you don't need me. Maybe we should be more dependent upon God as his disciples. So the third one, this, the third distinction of a disciple is disciples get dirty. Disciples, they go in a group, they're in a community, they, they, uh, they go dependent upon Jesus and his authority, and they get dirty in the ministry. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're going to get dirty. You're going you're gonna to get dirty, and the dirt is going to be getting involved in the lives of people who need Jesus. Listen, if you go and you get involved in the lives of people who need Jesus, expect to get dirty. They're going to share things with you. You're going to be involved in things that they're doing that you weren't maybe ready for, and it's going to be dirty. He's saying, look, I want you to go into their house, and I want you to stay there as long as you need to stay there. I want you to sit at their dinner table. I want you to have real conversations with them. I want you to get dirty in ministry, and I want you to get to know them. I want you to invest in them because Jesus Christ wants to invest his spirit in them. And so he wants to do something and you're going to have to go be his ambassador. So disciples get dirty. And sometimes when you get dirty, when you get involved in people's lives, you get discouraged because things don't always work out the way you want them to work out. Disciples can become disappointed in the outcomes of their duty, but we must not become deterred from our duty. 
Some of you listening right now, you used to be gung-ho. Like you were ready to do ministry. You were involved in a small group. You were involved with other people. Maybe you got burned. Maybe you got discouraged. And now you're just sitting on the bench and you're thinking, I just don't know if I can do it again. You're not to be deterred from the mission. You're to continue in even when, he says, look, just dust, your, dust yourself off and get back in there and share with people the hope that you have in Jesus. Disciples, they do ministry. They do it in community. They, they do it dependent upon the Lord. And they do it in a way that allows them to really be involved in people's lives. It's not social distancing discipleship, right? We're not doing that. We're going to get involved. And a lot of times it's a lot easier to swoop in for a week, do some missions, hey, and then see you later. We did our, we did our thing. We pat ourselves on the back. No, he's saying, I want you to be involved. Get dirty. Get into the lives of people who need to know Jesus. And here's the fourth one. Disciples proclaim repentance. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's easier to be involved in a community of faith to have brothers and sisters around you that you can do ministry with. It's another step out of your comfort zone to to be dependent upon God. God, we're going to need you to show up. And and it's another thing to even take the step further and to get dirty in ministry, to be involved, to be vulnerable in people's lives. But this, this is so difficult. It's so difficult in ministry to get to the point where you call people out on the sin that is in their life. When you tell them, look, there is a desperate need for repentance to be right with God. You see, disciples proclaim repentance, not reprimand people. And, and that's, the, that's the thing. Sometimes we go into that saying, all right, I'm going to tell them all the things that they're doing wrong. I'm the moral police because I'm doing everything better. That's not what Jesus said. He said, I want you to proclaim repentance. I didn't want you to go and reprimand people. I'm not wanting you to burn bridges. I'm not wanting you to to point fingers at people and tell them all the bad things that that they're doing. No, I want you to proclaim that repentance is necessary for a relationship with Jesus. So repentance can't be proclaimed until it is is personally practiced. Let me me just paint this picture for you. Imagine getting dirty in ministry by, by investing in the lives of people you know desperately need Jesus, spending time in their home, eating with them, What if they witnessed you repenting? What if they witnessed that repentance was vital for you because all of the Christian life is one of repentance, right? What if they heard you confessing the sins that are in your life, you struggling with things, saying that you really want to have a better relationship with the Lord? What would they think? They would would see repentance proclaimed. They wouldn't be reprimanded for the sins that are in their life. That's, That's the work of the Spirit. When the work of the Spirit begins to convict them, that's when they will repent. And so, disciples proclaim repentance. They they proclaim it when it's personally practiced. I like what Thomas Watson said. He said that there's six steps to repentance. And so I'm going to ask you, where are you in this process, in this step of repentance? The first one is seeing sin. It's actually saying, look, I know that there's things in my life that are sinful. And, And here's the deal. Some of us We don't see sin in our life because we refuse to define sin as the Bible does. 
We've made excuses for the sin that's in our life. We've worked our way around it because it makes us feel good or that's, what, that's how God's created me. We've made up all these things to make ourselves feel better. The, the first part of being repentant is seeing sin for what sin is and calling sin what sin is because of what God's word says. And so it, it, you need to take a good look at your life and say, look, is there sinful things in my life according to God's word? Seeing sin. The next one is being sorrowful for the sin. Sorrow for sin. You're sorry. You don't want it there. There's, you, you feel bad about it. That leads to a confession of sin. And when you confess, you're confessing to God, you're confessing to others for healing. You're saying, look, there's some things in my life that I feel really bad about. I've noticed them. I feel bad about them. I got to talk to somebody about it. I need to, I need to share this with somebody. And when you do that, sometimes there's a shame, shame of sin. You feel guilty it's one thing to be sorry. It's another thing to feel guilt. And so you get to this point where you just feel guilty. You feel gross. You feel ashamed of what's going on in your life. But the next one, the next one is so difficult. Hatred of sin. Oh, Pastor Jeff, I, I hate sin. I hate the sin that put Jesus on the cross. Okay, uh, let, me, let me explain this to you. You can notice and you can see sin that's in your life. You can even be sorry for it. Ah, I wish it wasn't there. You can even talk to somebody and say, oh, can I tell you what's going on in my life right now? And you can feel dirty and guilty about it and never get to the point of hating it. I went to a pastor's conference several years back and there was a pastor who got up and he said, all right, all you pastors in here, I want you to raise your hand if there's sin in your life. Okay, well, you know, you're a liar if you don't say that you sin. So everybody raises their hand like, don't make God out to be a liar. I'm, I got sin in my life. And he said, I want you to keep your hand up if that sin has any power in your life. Ooh. So a lot of hands stayed up. Yeah. I mean, if there's sin in my life, there's, there's a reason there. It's got, it's, got some, it's got some power in my life. It's got its, its talons in. It's like, yeah, I'm feeling it. And so he says, let me tell you why your hand is up. There's the sin has power in your life because you don't hate sin. You love it. And we were like, no way. No way. I hate sin. He said, no, you love it, even if it's for a short period of time because of how it makes you feel in the moment. You love it for that little bit of time for what it gives you. You love it because it fills a need in your life that you're not, let, you're not letting Jesus fill. Here's the deal. We can be seeing sin. We can be sorrowful for sin. We can confess sin. We can feel guilty about the sin, but we can still practice the sin because we like how it makes us feel in the moment. And if we never get to a point of hating sin, we'll never get to a point of turning away from sin. That's repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin. So I ask you, where are you? in the six steps of repentance. You see, disciples, they're in a community doing ministry with one another. Disciples are dependent upon Jesus and his authority and what he can do. Disciples get dirty. They get involved in people's lives because they desperately know that they need Jesus. And here's the thing. Disciples proclaim repentance because they are people who repent. It's the same message from the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. It seems simple, right? For many of us, we're struggling with unbelief. And for many of us, we're struggling to repent. The two essential things for salvation. 
Maybe right now you need to pause and you need to pray and you need to believe and you need to repent. Can I pray for you? Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, I come to you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you speak to us through your word. God, make us people of belief. People who believe so firmly in the gospel that we go and we proclaim it to those who need to hear it. But God, right now, make us a people of repentance. Make us a people who see the sin in our life, feel sorry for the sin in our life, confess the sin in our life, feel guilt for the sin in our life, and hate the sin in our life so that we will turn away from it. And let that be a witness of how good and gracious you are so that others will repent and believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, I love you. Look forward to seeing you real soon back here at MetaView. God bless. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each